Welcome to another episode from 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This one from Edgar Allan Poe, and one which is considered by many to be his best. The Murders in the Rue Morgue. It was published in Graham's Magazine in 1841, and it has since been recognized as the first modern detective story. Poe referred to it as one of his tales of a ratiocination, an early word for what detectives would call rationalization, a process we all use, and one which better detectives use quite well. The word detective had not yet been invented in 1841, but Poe's famous detective was C. Auguste Dupin, and in this story, Dupin is a man in Paris who looks into and then solves the mystery of a brutal murder of two women. Numerous witnesses heard a suspect, though no one agrees on what language was spoken. At the murder scene, Dupin finds a hair that does not appear to be human. As the first fictional detective, Poe's Dupin displays many traits which became literary conventions in subsequent fictional detectives, including Sherlock Holmes and Hercule Poirot. Many later characters, for example, follow Poe's model of the brilliant detective, his personal friend who serves as narrator, and the final revelation being presented before the reasoning that leads up to it. Dupin himself reappears in The Mystery of Marie Roget and The Purloined Letter. We include The Telltale Heart in our archives, and we've placed a link in the show notes for your convenience if you'd like to hear that one. We're going to begin this story by setting the stage for you with regard to the characters and locale of the story, and then giving you an express pass to the point of the story at which the real mystery begins. Our narrator lives in Paris, around 1850, and has come to know and respect a man named Auguste Dupin, who has demonstrated some incredible powers of intellect, especially with regard to understanding human behavior and his unique ability to analyze and prioritize large amounts of seemingly unrelated information in order to arrive at ingenious conclusions. A True Talent of Great Problem Solvers Dupin and our narrator are reading the local news and notice that a detailed account of a local crime has been printed, complete with a full description of the brutal murder of two women who live in a local morgue, it being a large, roomy building with a separate area housing the mortuary. We begin part one of the story with the description as found in the newspaper. Extraordinary Murders This morning, about three o'clock, the inhabitants of the Quartier Saint-Roche were aroused from sleep by a succession of terrific shrieks issuing apparently from the fourth story of a house in the Rue Morgue known to be in the sole occupancy of one Madame L'Espanier and her daughter Mademoiselle Camille L'Espanier. Occasioned by a fruitless attempt to procure admission in the usual manner, the gateway was broken in with a crowbar and eight or ten of the neighbors entered, accompanied by two gendarmes. By this time the cries had ceased, but as the party rushed up the first flight of stairs, two or more rough voices, in angry contention, were distinguished, and seemed to proceed from the upper part of the house. As the second landing was reached, these sounds also had ceased, and everything remained perfectly quiet. The party spread themselves, and hurried from room to room. Upon arriving at a large back chamber in the fourth story, the door of which, being found locked, with the key inside, was forced open. A spectacle presented itself which struck everyone present not less with horror than with astonishment. The apartment was in the wildest disorder 
the furniture broken and thrown about in all directions. There was only one bedstead, and from this the bed had been removed and thrown into the middle of the floor. On a chair lay a razor, besmeared with blood. On the hearth were two or three long and thick tresses of gray human hair, also dabbled in blood, and seeming to have been pulled out by the roots. Upon the floor were found four Napoleons, an earring of topaz, three large silver spoons, three smaller of metal d'Alger, and two bags containing nearly four thousand francs in gold. The drawers of a bureau, which stood in one corner, were open, and had been apparently rifled, although many articles still remained in them. A small iron safe was discovered under the bed, not under the bedstead. It was open, with the key still in the door. It had no contents beyond a few old letters and other papers of little consequence. Of Madame L'Espagnier, no traces were here seen, but an unusual quantity of soot being observed in the fireplace. A search was made in the chimney, and, horrible to relate, the corpse of the daughter, head downward, was dragged therefrom, it having been thus forced up the narrow aperture for a considerable distance. The body was quite warm. Upon examining it, many excoriations were perceived, no doubt occasioned by the violence with which it had been thrust up and disengaged. Upon the face were many severe scratches, and upon the throat dark bruises and deep indentations of fingernails, as if the deceased had been throttled to death. After a thorough investigation of every portion of the house, without further discovery, the party made its way into a small paved yard in the rear of the building, where lay the corpse of the old lady, with her throat so entirely cut that, upon an attempt to raise her, the head fell off. The body, as well as the head, was fearfully mutilated, the former so much, so as scarcely to retain any semblance of humanity. To this horrible mystery there has not as yet, we believe, the slightest clue. The next day's paper had these additional particulars. The tragedy in the Rue Morgue. Many individuals have been examined in relation to this most extraordinary and frightful affair, but nothing whatever has transpired to throw light upon it. We give below all the material testimony elicited. Pauline Dubourg, laundress, deposes that she had known both the deceased for three years, having washed for them during that period. The old lady and her daughter seemed on good terms, very affectionate towards each other. They were excellent pay, could not speak in regard to their mode or means of living, believed that Madame L. told fortunes for a living, was reputed to have money put by, never met any persons in the house when she called for the clothes or took them home was sure that they had no servant in employ. There appeared to be no furniture in any part of the building, except in the fourth story. Pierre Moreau, tobacconist, deposes that he has been in the habit of selling small quantities of tobacco and snuff to Madame L'Espagnier for nearly four years, was born in the neighborhood, and has always resided there. The deceased and her daughter had occupied the house in which the corpses were found for more than six years formerly occupied by a jeweler who underlet the upper rooms to various persons. The house was the property of Madame L. She became dissatisfied with the abuse of the premises by her tenant and moved into them herself, refusing to let any portion. The old lady was childish. Witnesses had seen the daughter some five or six times during the six years. The two lived an exceedingly retired life, were reputed to have money. 
He had heard it said among the neighbors that Madame L. told fortunes, but did not believe it. He had never seen any person enter the door except the old lady and her daughter, a porter once or twice, and a physician some eight or ten times. Many other persons, neighbors, gave evidence to the same effect. No one was spoken of as frequenting the house. It was not known whether there were any living connections of Madame L. and her daughter. The shutters of the front windows were seldom opened. Those in the rear were always closed, with the exception of the large back room, fourth story. The house was a good house, not very old. Isidore Must, gendarme, deposes that he was called to the house about three o'clock in the morning and found some twenty or thirty persons at the gateway, endeavoring to gain admittance, forced it open at length with a bayonet, not with a crowbar, had but little difficulty in getting it open on account of its being a double or folding gate, and bolted neither at bottom nor top. The shrieks were continued until the gate was forced and then suddenly ceased. They seemed to be screams of some person or persons in great agony. They were loud and drawn out, not short and quick. Witness led the way upstairs. Upon reaching the first landing, heard two voices in loud and angry contention, the one a gruff voice, the other much shriller, a very strange voice, could distinguish some words of the former, which was that of a Frenchman was positive that it was not a woman's voice, could distinguish the words Sacre and Diablo. The shrill voice was that of a foreigner. Could not be sure whether it was the voice of a man or a woman. Could not make out what was said, but believed the language to be Spanish. The state of the room and the bodies were described by this witness as we described them yesterday. Henri Duval, a neighbor, and by trade a silversmith, deposes that he was one of the party who first entered the house, corroborates the testimony of must in general. As soon as they forced an entrance, they reclosed the door to keep out the crowd, which collected very fast, notwithstanding the lateness of the hour. The shrill voice, this witness thinks, was that of an Italian, was certain it was not French, could not be sure that it was a man's voice, it might have been a woman's, was not acquainted with the Italian language, could not distinguish the words, but was convinced by the intonation that the speaker was an Italian, knew Madame L. and her daughter, had conversed with both frequently, was sure that the shrill voice was not that of either of the deceased. Odenheimer, restaurateur, this witness volunteered his testimony. Not speaking French, was examined through an interpreter, is a native of Amsterdam, was passing the house at the time of the shrieks, they lasted for several minutes, probably ten. They were long and loud, very awful and distressing. Was one of those who entered the building. Corroborated the previous evidence in every respect but one. Was sure that the shrill voice was that of a Frenchman. Could not distinguish the words uttered. They were loud and quick, unequal spoken, apparently in fear as well as in anger. The voice was harsh and not so much shrill as harsh. Could not call it a shrill voice. The gruff voice said repeatedly, Sacre, Diable, or Diable, and once, Mon Dieu. Jules Mignaud, banker of the firm of Mignaud et Fille, Rue de Lorraine, is the elder Mignaud. Madame L'Espagne had some property, had opened an account with his banking house in the spring of the year, eight years previously, made frequent deposits in small sums, had checked for nothing until third day before her death when she took out in person the sum of 4,000 francs, 
This sum was paid for in gold, and the clerk went home with the money. Adolphe Lebon, clerk to Mignon, a field, deposes that on the day in question, about noon, he accompanied Madame L'Espanier to her residence with the 4,000 francs, put up in two bags. Upon the door being opened, Mademoiselle L. appeared and took from his hands one of the bags, while the old lady relieved him of the other. He then bowed and departed, did not see any person in the street at the time. It is a by-street, very lonely. William Byrd, tailor, deposes that he was one of the party who entered the house, is an Englishman, has lived in Paris two years, was one of the first to ascend the stairs, heard the voices in contention. The gruff voice was that of a Frenchman. Could make out several words, but cannot now remember all. Heard distinctly Sacre and Mon Dieu. There was a sound at the moment as if several persons struggling a scraping and scuffling sound. The shrill voice was very loud, louder than the gruff one. Is sure that it was not the voice of an Englishman. Appeared to be that of a German. Might have been a woman's voice. Does not understand German. Four of the above-named witnesses, being recalled, deposed that the door of the chamber in which was found the body of Mademoiselle L. was locked on the inside when the party reached it. Everything was perfectly silent, no groans or noises of any kind. A door between the two rooms was closed, but not locked. The door leading from the front room into the passage was locked, with the key on the inside. A small room in the front of the house, on the fourth story, at the head of the passage, was open, the door being ajar. This room was crowded with old beds, boxes, and so forth. These were carefully removed and searched. There was not an inch of any portion of the house which was not carefully searched. Sweeps were sent up and down the chimneys. The house was a four-story with garrets, mansards. A trap door on the roof was nailed down very securely, did not appear to have been opened for years. The time elapsing between the hearing of the voices in contention and the breaking open of the room door was variously stated by the witnesses. Some made it as short as three minutes, some as long as five. The door was opened with difficulty. Alfonso Garcio, undertaker, deposes that he resides in the Rue Morgue, is a native of Spain, was one of the party who entered the house, did not proceed up the stairs, is nervous and was apprehensive of the consequences of agitation, heard the voices in contention, the gruff voice was that of a Frenchman, could not distinguish what was said, the shrill voice was that of an Englishman, is sure of this, does not understand the English language, but judges by the intonation. Alberto Montani, confectioner, deposes that he was among the first to ascend the stairs, heard the voices in question, the gruff voice was that of a Frenchman, distinguished several words, the speaker appeared to be expostulating, could not make out the words of the shrill voice, spoke quick and unevenly, thinks it's the voice of a Russian, corroborates the general testimony, is an Italian, never conversed with a native of Russia. Several witnesses recalled here testified that the chimneys of all the rooms on the fourth story were too narrow to admit the passage of a human being. By sweeps were meant cylindrical sweeping brushes, such as are employed by those who clean chimneys. These brushes were passed up and down every flue in the house. There is no back passage by which anyone could have descended while the party proceeded upstairs. The body of Mademoiselle L'Espanier was so firmly wedged in the chimney that it could not be got down until four or five of the party united their strength. 
Paul Dumas, physician, deposes that he was called to view the bodies about daybreak. They were both then lying on the sacking of the bedstead in the chamber where Mademoiselle L. was found. The corpse of the young lady was much bruised and excoriated. The fact that it had been thrust up the chimney would sufficiently account for these appearances. The throat was greatly chafed. There were several deep scratches just below the chin, together with a series of livid spots which were evidently the impression of fingers. The face was fearfully discolored, and the eyeballs protruded. The tongue had been partially bitten through. A large bruise was discovered upon the pit in the stomach, produced, apparently, by the pressure of a knee. In the opinion of M. Dumas, Mademoiselle Lispanier had been throttled to death by some person or persons unknown. The corpse of the mother was horribly mutilated. All the bones of the right leg and arm were more or less shattered. The left tibia much splintered, as well as all the ribs of the left side. Whole body dreadfully bruised and discolored. It was not possible to say how the injuries had been inflicted. A heavy club of wood or a broad bar of iron, a chair, any large, heavy, and obtuse weapon would have produced such results if wielded by the hands of a very powerful man. No woman could have inflicted the blows with any weapon. The head of the deceased, when seen by witness, was entirely separated from the body and was also greatly shattered. The throat had evidently been cut with some very sharp instrument, probably with a razor. Alexandre Etienne, a surgeon, was called with M. Dumas to view the bodies, corroborated the testimony and the opinions of M. Dumas. Nothing further of importance was elicited, although several other persons were examined. A murder so mysterious and so perplexing in all its particulars was never before committed in Paris, if indeed a murder has been committed at all. The police are entirely at fault an unusual occurrence in affairs of this nature. There is not, however, the shadow of a clue apparent. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. The evening edition of the paper stated that the greatest excitement still continued in the Quartier Saint-Roche, that the premises in question had been carefully researched and fresh examinations of witnesses instituted, but all to no purpose. A postscript, however, mentioned that Adolphe Le Bon had been arrested and imprisoned, although nothing appeared to incriminate him beyond the facts already detailed. Dupin seemed singularly interested in the progress of this affair, at least so I judged from his manner, for he made no comments. It was only after the announcement that Le Bon had been imprisoned that he asked me my opinion respecting the murders. I could merely agree with all Paris in considering them to be an insoluble mystery. I saw no means by which it could be possible to trace the murderer. We must not judge of the means, said Dupin, by this shell of an examination. The Parisian police, so much extolled for acumen, are cunning, but no more. There is no method in their proceedings beyond the method of the moment. They make a vast parade of measures, but, not unfrequently, these are so ill-adapted to the objects proposed as to put us in mind of Monsieur Jordan's calling for his robe de chambre 
pour mieux entendre la musique. The results attained by them are not unfrequently surprising, but for the most part are brought about by simple diligence and activity. When these qualities are unavailing, their schemes fail. Vidoc, for example, was a good guesser and a persevering man, but without educated thought he erred continuously by the very intensity of his investigations. He impaired his vision by holding the object too close. He might see, perhaps, one or two points with unusual clearness, but in so doing he necessarily lost sight of the matter as a whole. Thus there is such a thing as being too profound. Truth is not always in a well. In fact, as regards the more important knowledge, I do believe that she is invariably superficial. The depth lies in the valleys where we seek her, and not upon the mountain tops where she is found. The modes and sources of this kind of error are well typified in the contemplation of the heavenly bodies. To look at a star by glances, to view it in a sidelong way, by turning toward it the exterior portions of the retina, more susceptible of feeble impressions of light than the interior, is to behold the star distinctly, is to have the best appreciation of its luster, a luster which grows dim just in proportion as we turn our vision fully upon it. The greater number of rays actually fall upon the eye in the latter case, but in the former there is the more refined capacity for comprehension. But undue profundity we perplex an enfeeble thought, and it is possible to make even Venus herself vanish from the firmament by a scrutiny too sustained, too concentrated, or too direct. As for these murders, let us enter into some examinations for ourselves before we make up an opinion respecting them. An inquiry will afford us amusement. I thought this an odd term, so applied, but said nothing. And besides, Le Bon once rendered me a service for which I am not ungrateful. We will go and see the premises with our own eyes. I know G, the prefect of police, and shall have no difficulty in obtaining the necessary permission. The permission was obtained, and we proceeded at once to the Rue Morgue. This is one of those miserable thoroughfares which intervene between the Rue Richelieu and the Rue Saint-Roche. It was late in the afternoon when we reached it, as this quarter is at a great distance from that in which we resided. The house was readily found, for there were still many persons gazing up at the closed shutters with an objectless curiosity from the opposite side of the way. It was an ordinary Parisian house with a gateway, on one side of which was a glazed watch-box, with a sliding panel in the window, indicating a loge de concierge. Before going in, we walked up the street, turned down an alley, and then, again turning, passed in the rear of the building. Dupin, meanwhile, examining the whole neighborhood, as well as the house, with a minuteness of attention for which I could see no possible object. Retracing our steps, we came again to the front of the dwelling, rang, and having shown our credentials, were admitted by the agents in charge. We went up the stairs into the chamber where the body of Mademoiselle L'Espanier had been found, and where both the deceased still lay. The disorders of the room had, as usual, been suffered to exist. I saw nothing beyond what had been stated in the Gazette des Tribunaux. Dupin scrutinized everything not accepting the bodies of the victims. We then went into the other rooms and into the yard, a gendarme accompanying us throughout. The examination occupied us until dark, when we took our departure. On our way home, my companion stepped in for a moment at the office of one of the daily papers, 
I have said that the whims of my friend were manifold, and that je l'ai menagé. For this phrase there is no English equivalent. It was his humor, now, to decline all conversation on the subject of the murder, until about noon the next day. He then asked me, suddenly, if I had observed anything peculiar at the scene of the atrocity. There was something in his manner of emphasizing the word peculiar, which caused me to shudder, without knowing why. No, nothing peculiar, I said. Nothing more, at least, than we both saw stated in the paper. The Gazette, he replied, has not entered, I fear, into the unusual horror of the thing. But dismiss the idle opinions of this print. It appears to me that this mystery is considered insoluble for the very reason which should cause it to be regarded as easy of solution. I mean for the outer character of its features. The police are confounded by the seeming absence of motive, not for the murder itself, but for the atrocity of the murder. They are puzzled, too, by the seeming impossibility of reconciling the voices heard in contention, with the facts that no one was discovered upstairs but the assassinated Mademoiselle L'Espanier, and that there were no means of egress without the notice of the party ascending. The wild disorder of the room, the corpse thrust with the head downward, up the chimney, the frightful mutilation of the body of the old lady. These considerations, with those just mentioned, and others which I need not mention, have sufficed to paralyze the powers by putting completely at fault the boasted acumen of the government agents. They have fallen into the gross but common error of confounding the unusual with the abstruse. But it is by these deviations from the plane of the ordinary that reason feels its way, if at all, in its search for the true. In investigations such as we are now pursuing, it should not be so much asked what has occurred as what has occurred that has never occurred before. In fact, the facility with which I shall arrive, or have arrived, at the solution of this mystery is in the direct ratio of its apparent insolubility in the eyes of the police. I stared at my friend in mute astonishment. I am now awaiting, continued he, looking toward the door of our apartment. I am now awaiting a person who, although perhaps not the perpetrator of these butcheries, must have been in some measure implicated in their perpetration. Of the worst portion of the crimes committed, it is probable that he is innocent. I hope that I am right in this supposition, for upon it I build my expectation of reading the entire riddle. I look for the man here in this room every moment. It is true that he may not arrive, but the probability is that he will. Should he come, it will be necessary to detain him. Here are pistols, and we both know how to use them when occasion demands their use. I took the pistols, scarcely knowing what I did, or believing what I heard, while Dupin went on, very much as if in a soliloquy. I have already spoken of his abstract manner at such times. His discourse was addressed to myself, but his voice, although by no means loud, had that intonation which is commonly employed in speaking to someone at a great distance. His eyes, vacant in expression, regarded only the wall. That the voices heard in contention, he said, by the party upon the stairs, were not the voices of the women themselves, was fully proved by the evidence. This relieves us of all doubt upon the question whether the old lady could have first destroyed the daughter and afterward have committed suicide. I speak of this point chiefly for the sake of method, for the strength of Madame L'Espanier 
would have been utterly unequal to the task of thrusting her daughter's corpse up the chimney as it was found, and the nature of the wounds upon her own persons entirely preclude the idea of self-destruction. Murder, then, has been committed by some third party, and the voices of this third party were those heard in contention. Let me now advert not to the whole testimony respecting these voices, but to what was peculiar in that testimony. Did you observe anything peculiar about it? I remarked that, while all the witnesses agreed in supposing the gruff voice to be that of a Frenchman, there was much disagreement in regard to the shrill, or, as one individual termed it, the harsh voice. That was evidence itself, said Dupin, but it was not the peculiarity of the evidence. You have observed nothing distinctive. Yet there was something to be observed. The witnesses, as you remark, agreed about the gruff voice. They were here unanimous. But in regard to the shrill voice, the peculiarity is not that they disagreed, but that, while an Italian, an Englishman, a Spaniard, a Hollander, and a Frenchman attempted to describe it, each one spoke of it as that of a foreigner. Each is sure that it was not the voice of one of his own countrymen. Each likens it not to the voice of an individual of any nation with whose language he is conversant, but the converse. The Frenchman supposes it's the voice of a Spaniard, and might have distinguished some words had he been acquainted with the Spanish. The Dutchman maintains it had been that of a Frenchman, but we find it stated that, not understanding French, this witness was examined through an interpreter. The Englishman thinks it's the voice of a German, and doesn't understand German. The Italian believes it was the voice of a Russian, but has never conversed with the native of Russia. A second Frenchman differs, moreover, with the first, and is positive that the voice was that of an Italian, but not being cognizant of that tongue, is, like the Spaniard, convinced by the intonation. Now how strangely unusual must that voice have really been, about which such testimony as this could have been elicited? In whose tones, even, denizens of five great divisions of Europe could recognize nothing familiar? You will say that it might have been the voice of an Asiatic or an African. Neither Asiatics nor Africans abound in Paris. But, without denying the inference, I will now merely call your attention to three points. The voice is termed by one witness, harsh rather than shrill. It is represented by two others to have been quick and unequal. No words, no sounds resembling words, were by any witness mentioned as distinguishable. I know not, continued Dupin, what impression I may have made so far upon your own understanding, but I do not hesitate to say that legitimate deductions, even from this portion of the testimony, the portion respecting the gruff and shrill voices, are in themselves sufficient to engender a suspicion which should give direction to all further progress in the investigation of the mystery. I said legitimate deductions, but my meaning is not thus fully expressed. I design to imply that the deductions are the sole proper ones, and that the suspicion arises inevitably from them as the single result. What the suspicion is, however, I will not say just yet. I merely wish you to bear in mind that, with myself, it was sufficiently forcible to give a definite form a certain tendency to my inquiries in the chamber. Let us now transport ourselves in fancy to this chamber. What shall we first seek here? The means of egress or escape employed by the murderers. 
It's not too much to say that neither of us believe in supernatural events. Madame and Mademoiselle L'Espanier were not destroyed by spirits. The doers of the deed were material and escaped materially. Then how? Fortunately, there is but one mode of reasoning upon the point, and that mode must lead us to a definite decision. Let us examine each by each the possible means of escape. It is clear that the assassins were in the room where Mademoiselle L'Espanier was found, or at least in the room adjoining when the party ascended the stairs. It is then only from these two apartments that we have to seek issues. The police have laid bare the floors, the ceilings, and the masonry of the walls in every direction. No secret issues could have escaped their vigilance. But not trusting to their eyes, I examined with my own. There were then no secret issues. Both doors leading from the rooms into the passage were securely locked with the keys inside. Let us turn to the chimneys. These, although of ordinary width for some eight or ten feet above the hearths, will not admit, throughout their extent, the body of a large cat. The impossibility of escape, by means already stated, being thus absolute, we are reduced to the windows. Through those of the front room, no one could have escaped without notice from the crowd in the street. The murderers must have passed, then, through those of the back room. Now, brought to this conclusion in so unequivocal a manner as we are, it is not our part, as reasoners, to reject it on account of apparent impossibility. It's only left for us to prove that these apparent impossibilities are in reality not such. There are two windows in the chamber. One of them is unobstructed by the furniture and is wholly visible. The lower portion of the other is hidden from view by the head of the unwieldy bedstead, which is thrust close up against it. The former was found securely fastened from within. It resisted the utmost force of those who endeavored to raise it. A large gimlet hole had been pierced in its frame to the left, and a very stout nail was found fitted therein, nearly to the head. Upon examining the other window, a similar nail was seen similarly fitted in it, and a vigorous attempt to raise this sash failed also. The police were now entirely satisfied that escape had not been in these directions, and therefore it was thought a matter of supererogation to withdraw the nails and open the windows. My own examination was somewhat more particular, and was so far the reason I have just given, because here it was. I knew that all apparent impossibilities must be proved to be not such in reality. I proceeded to think thus posteriori. The murderers did escape from one of these windows. This being so, they could not have refastened the sashes from the inside, as they were found fastened. The consideration which put a stop, through its obviousness, to the scrutiny of the police in this quarter. Yet the sashes were fastened. They must, then, have the power of fastening themselves. There was no escape from this conclusion. I stepped to the unobstructed casement, withdrew the nail with some difficulty, and attempted to raise the sash. It resisted all my efforts, as I had anticipated. A concealed spring must, I now knew, exist, and this corroboration of my idea convinced me that my premises, at least, were correct. However mysterious still appeared the circumstances attending the nails. A careful search soon brought to light the hidden spring. I pressed it and, satisfied with the discovery, forbore to upraise the sash. I now replaced the nail and regarded it attentively. 
A person passing out through this window might have reclosed it, and the spring would have caught, but the nail could not have been replaced. The conclusion was plain, and again narrowed in the field of my investigations. The assassins must have escaped through the other window. Supposing, then, the springs upon each sash to be the same, as was probable, there must be found a difference between the nails, or at least between the modes of their fixture. Getting upon the sacking of the bedstead, I looked over the headboard minutely at this second casement. Passing my hand down behind the board, I readily discovered and pressed the spring, which was, as I had supposed, identical in character with its neighbor. I now looked at the nail. It was as stout as the other, and apparently fitted in the same manner, driven in nearly up to the head. If you think so, you must have misunderstood the nature of the inductions. To use a sporting phrase, I had not once been at fault. The scent had never for an instant been lost. There was no flaw in any link of the chain. I had traced the secret to its ultimate result, and that result was the nail. It had, I say in every respect, the appearance of its fellow in the other window, but this fact was an absolute nullity when compared with the consideration that here, at this point, terminated the clue. There must be something wrong, I said, about the nail. I touched it, and the head, with about a quarter of an inch of the shank, came off in my fingers. The rest of the shank was in the gimlet hole, where it had broken off. The fracture was an old one, for its edges were encrusted with rust, and apparently been accomplished by the blow of a hammer, which had been partially embedded in the top of the bottom sash, the head portion of the nail. I now carefully replaced this head portion in the indentation whence I had taken it, and the resemblance to a perfect nail was complete. The fissure was invisible. Pressing the spring, I gently raised the sash for a few inches. The head went up with it, remaining firm in its bed. I closed the window, and the semblance of the whole nail was again perfect. The riddle, so far, was now unriddled. The assassin had escaped through the window which looked upon the bed. Dropping of its own accord upon his exit, or perhaps purposely closed, it had become fastened by the spring, and it was the retention of this spring which had been mistaken by the police for that of the nail. Farther inquiry being thus considered unnecessary. The next question is that of the mode of descent. We'll return with the rest of our story next week. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales is a proud member of the 1001 Stories Podcast Network, which also includes 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, and 1001 Stories for the Road. We can also be found wherever great podcasts are found, at Apple Podcast App, Stitcher.com, Podbay.fm, to name a few. We always appreciate reviews at iTunes for 1001 Classic Short Stories. If you enjoy our shows, please write a short review. Heck, write a long one. I don't ask often, but when I do, I know some of you will come through for us. Thank you, and thank you for listening. For now, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.